Well, um, we're in week 10 of Into the Flannel Graph, and there's only one more week left in this series. And uh, we've been working through this series with the idea that who we are uh, determines what we do. And so our identity is important in determining uh, the actions we take in our life. And so I'm a preacher, so every Sunday morning, guess what? I get up here and I preach. Uh, Dr. Purdue is an evangelist, and most time he's traveling all over the country and, and preaching. So, so what we do, who we are, determines what we do. And, and God's story helps us find our identity as the people of God. That, that God sees us differently than the world sees us, than, than we sometimes see ourselves. And, and so as we look at God's story, it helps us find our identity. It helps us find who we truly are. And, and so we've been tracing through uh, the story of God, our story. We've been tracing through this story for the past uh, 10 weeks, 9 weeks plus this week, and one more week to go. And we've talked about a creation. We talked about the God that created uh, we, we talked about catastrophe. We talked about Adam and Eve sinning in the garden. We talked about the flood and Noah. We talked about a covenant. We talked about Abram and God coming to Abram and, and reinstituting this or instituting this covenant with Abram. Abram. Then, then we talked about detours, which everybody has detours in your life. It seems like that, that most of the time there's detours going on in some area of our life. And, and so it was important that we talked about that because I don't think our life flows completely smooth at times. And, and so we looked at Jacob and Joseph when we talked about detours. And, and that's, that's a, a theme consistent throughout God's story. Then we looked at de- deliverance. We looked at Moses and the people of Israel being delivered from slavery. Deliverance is another one of those continuing themes throughout this story. And hopefully it's a, it's a theme in your story as well that, that you have a God who delivers you and, and God is still the God of deliverance. Then we talked about commandment and community. And, and then we, we kind of raced through the, the rest of the Old Testament and talked about wilderness and exile. Uh, I, I, the brackets of the Old Testament where the people were in the wilderness and then they ended up in exile. And, and, and then we talked about, finally, for two weeks... We talked about Jesus, and I enjoyed talking about Jesus. Do you enjoy listening about Jesus? I hope you did. And this week we're going to talk about the one person did, and that's good. Uh, we're this, week, this week we're going to talk about the Holy Spirit and, and the church. And, and initially, as I, as I traced this series out, uh, we, we were going to talk about the Holy Spirit one week and the church one week, and so it was two weeks, but, but we're merging these together. Uh, we're going to do a series on the church in the fall called Ecclesia, and we're going to be uh, tracing this significantly out of the book of Ephesians, and we'll be looking at what the, the function of the church, and, and, and really you could do, uh, you know, well, you could preach on all these topics for, for many weeks, you could do a complete series on any of these topics, uh, but, but as, I, as I consider just this role of the Spirit in the church, it seems like the role of the Spirit and the church working with the Spirit are so closely connected that, that I think it's important that we as a people see that the continuing ministry of Jesus through the church is achieved through the work of the Holy Spirit. The, the church becomes the body of Christ active in the world through the Holy Spirit. See, see, it's possible to be called a church and yet not be 
doing the function of the church. It's only when the Holy Spirit is leading and the church is full of the Holy Spirit that, that the church truly becomes all that God intended her to become. And so as I looked at these topics, I, I, I thought, you know, let's just talk about them together because they're so, so connected. See, see, the church becomes the body of Christ when it's full of the Holy Spirit. And the church is full of the Holy Spirit when the people of the church are full of the Holy Spirit. And so when the church is full of the Holy Spirit, the church changes from a group of people who are simply learning about Jesus to a group of people who are full of the mind of Jesus. Do you see the distinction? See, it's possible, and, and Jesus repudiated religious systems. It's possible to be religious, but not Christian. It's possible to be a religious atheist. It's possible, it's possible to just go through the motions. It's possible to be caught up in churchianity. <laughs> Nothing wrong with the church, just Nothing wrong with rules and religion necessarily, but God's intention for His people are for it to be something deeper and more meaningful and more significant than just learning a bunch of rules and going through the motions and doing things that other people do, right? So, so this isn't about culture. This is about God and wanting to infuse people and make them His church. You know, that, that's that Greek word, Greek word, ecclesia, which is another one of those words that was used in, in the political bodies of that day that the early church took, <laughs> that, 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 that they took this word ecclesia. And when we get into the series, we'll probably talk a little bit about ecclesia, but, but, but this ideal of church, the people of God, full of the spirit of God, doing the work of God. And that's the, that's the role of the church and the spirit together. And so we, we have the story, Jesus is, is raised from the dead, and, and, and we talked about that last week. And, and so there's, there's a period, and I always like to ask this question just to see, how many days is Jesus with them before he ascends into heaven? 40 days, okay? And so for 40 days, Jesus walks among them. There, there's, there's all sorts of stories. There's at least 500 witnesses, according to one of the, 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 the accounts that, that witnessed Jesus. He's with the disciples on two or three occasions at least that the, the scriptures talk about. There, there's this, this story of Jesus on the day of the resurrection walking with two disciples on the Emmaus Road. There, there, there's some mystery to it. Somebody was asking me about about that uh, last week about the resurrected Jesus. It seems sometimes that Jesus is not readily apparently he's not easily identified and, and, and you know there's some issues on that. There, there, there's times that Jesus just seems to be there then he's gone and then he shows up and, and so there's some mystery to this that, that when we get to heaven don't ask me. Just wait till you get to heaven and you can ask God about it or you can ask Dr. Purdue. He probably knows. I don't know. There's some mystery to it, right, Dr. Purdue? You know, what was, did Jesus appear differently? I don't know. But they knew it was him. And for 40 days, he was with them 
and he was still teaching them. And, and some, of the, some of the passages that we have that, that are so, so important to us, that the great commandment comes from the resurrected Jesus. After Jesus has done his work, he says, go and make disciples. So he's with them 40 days, and, and then Jesus ascends into heaven so that they, the Father can send the Holy Spirit. And for 10 days, they, they gather in the upper room in Jerusalem, and they wait for the gift that Jesus has promised that they wait for the gift of the Holy Spirit. Now, now the concept of the Holy Spirit was not a new concept. That the ideal of the Holy Spirit falling on people was definitely an Old Testament concept. As a matter of fact, you, you see the Holy Spirit falls, fall on kings, and, and He falls on prophets. But, but the ideal of the Holy Spirit falling on the entire people of God was new. You know, I'm reminded of the story of, of, of Moses, and Moses asked God to, to put his spirit on other prophets, and he puts his, this spirit on, I believe, 80 men, and, and two of them stay in the camp and are still prophesying, and Joshua's all bent out of shape about it, and, and Moses says, only I wish all God's people were full of his spirit. <laughs> and he's saying that in a prophetic way because that's God's desire too, that all of his people be spirit-filled. Maybe this is a good time to say this. You realize God's not got super sanctified, special people than you. God's desire is for all of His people to be completely sold out and full of His Spirit doing His work. You know, every once in a while you hear, oh, that person's a prayer warrior. God's desire is that all of His people be prayer warriors. That, that person's a soul winner. God's desire is all of His people be soul winners. And He does that through the Holy Spirit. And so they've gathered in Acts, in Acts 1-8, Jesus has said that you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and even to the remotest part of the earth. And, and we talked about this on Pentecost summer, Sunday. I, I truly believe what Jesus is talking about, and typically we see this and it's preached, it's from familiar to less familiar, but, but Jerusalem was not familiar to them. This is not where they were from, and what Jesus is saying is, you will begin immediately doing my business when the Holy Spirit falls upon you. And so sure enough, the Holy Spirit falls and, and you have the event we call Pentecost. Pentecost comes 50 days after Passover, which coincides with the giving of the law on Mount Sinai. They, they would have celebrated the giving of the law. And so at Mount Sinai, God gave them an external law. At Pentecost, God gives us an internal law. And so these laws that were written are now intended to be written on our hearts. And so they, Peter gets up and he, he preaches this great message. And 3,000 are added to their number. This great ingathering are gathered in on that first day. And then Acts 2, 42 through 47 they were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' preaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. 
Everyone kept feeling a sense of awe, and many wonders and signs were taking place to the apostles. And all those who had believed were together and had all things in common. They began selling their property and possessions and were sharing them with all as anyone might have need, day by day, continuing with one mind in the temple and breaking bread from house to house. They were taking their meals together with gladness and sincerity of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord was adding to their number day by day those who were being saved. (laughs) You know, I love that passage. Do you guys like that passage? It's one of my favorite passages. As a matter of fact, I've preached sermon series on what the church should look like based on that passage. And I think the church should look like that passage But I think the problem is it's easy to stop here and begin to think, well, that's it. But Jesus had more in mind. Sure, there's going to be awesome things in Jerusalem, but Jesus didn't tell them to stay in their comfort zones. He didn't say, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem. (laughs) Right? It would be my witness in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And so this becomes the model oftentimes for what church should be. And a lot of times it becomes comfortable and familiar, cliquish. We, we know everyone's names. We, we never are confronted with anybody that's a little bit different or uncomfortable And the church just kind of stayed there. (laughs) They stayed at rest in Jerusalem. There was was produce. There was fruit. But God had more in mind. You ever hear the phrase, an object at motion at rest tends to stay at rest until an equal opposite force puts it in motion? (laughs) God began to put the church in motion. And God put the church through motion. I'm going to ask this question. How did God begin to move the church? Say it again. Persecution. Persecution. See, I'm convinced that they were perfectly content in Jerusalem, building a church there, and God put them in motion through persecution. See, following the Spirit meant they could not remain comfortable in Jerusalem. They couldn't. So we have this story that the the Grecian widows, these are people who had moved to Jerusalem. They had become converts to Judaism. And and then the husband had died or either that the widow had moved to Jerusalem and they were depending on the care of the Israelites because Israel was known for its care for widows. I mean, that's one of the things they were known for. And and so the Grecian widows were being ignored in the, the daily food distribution. The, the Grecian widows, the widows were dependent on others. They, they couldn't go out and work. They didn't own property. And so they were tend- dependent on others, particularly if there weren't kids supporting them. And the Grecian widows were being ignored. And so there's this cry that comes to the church. <laughs> that, hey, they're being ignored. And, and so the apostles appoint seven men full of the Holy Spirit to be deacons. And it's kind of interesting, and, and, and you can take this, you, you know, what I like about some of these stories is, is there's not a lot of commentary, it's just a story. And, and, and preachers can take this different ways, but, but the apostles 
do not want to be part of this because they're too busy in the word and prayer to be waiting on tables. And that's the language that's used. And what's interesting is after this, the apostles who were too busy to wait on tables become less important. And Philip and Stephen become prominent in the story. I would say this. There's no one in this room, including this preacher, that's too important to wait on tables. That, that we follow a Jesus who served, and whenever we get, and, and maybe that's not what's going on here, but it is interesting that, that the move of the church begins to occur through these deacons full of the Holy Spirit willing to wait on tables. So we have the story of Stephen, and, and Stephen has confrontation with, with the Jewish leaders, and, and they stone him, they kill him. He's the, first, he's the first recorded, biblically recorded Christian martyr. And, and Paul, Saul, is standing there giving approval to Stephen being killed. And another one of these guys is Philip. And Philip is taken by the Spirit to Samaria, and he begins to fulfill what Jesus asked him to do. He begins this, this revival in Samaria. Now, now we know Samaria is, um, is northern Israel. It's, it's, it's what was once Israel. When Israel was displaced, when they were sent into exile, they, they left a few Jewish people there, and then they brought in other people, and there was this mixed group of people that, that kind of did their own thing, had their own way of worship, and they, and they would associate themselves with the Jews when it benefited them. When it didn't benefit them, they would say they weren't Jewish. And, and so there was this animosity between Samaritans and Jews. And we, we all, we've heard those stories. We understand that. And, and yet, Philip goes and begins to preach in Samaria. And there's this great revival. And, and finally, the revival is so great that the apostles send some people down to make sure that this is a true revival. And sure enough, it is. And then Philip is taken to a road where an Ethiopian eunuch come by, comes by. And in the story, you know, the, the eunuch is reading from the book of Isaiah and Philip. It's, it's kind of a humorous story, actually. You know, Philip's running besides the chariot. And, you know, I, I want you guys, that's, that's your assignment this week. Somebody's driving down your road. I want you to run beside their car and to, until they, they, they say, why are you running beside my car? Uh, and so Philip's running beside the Ethiopian eunuch's car and his, his chariot. Yeah, he's in a ride. Uh, <laughs> you know, the bass is going real low. It's really cool. Um, <laughs> oh, no, I'm not going to be able to get that image out of my mind now. And he's reading from the book of Isaiah, and um, Philip begins to explain to him who the prophet is talking about. He's talking about Jesus. And he explains to him what Jesus has done and this opportunity for salvation. And this Ethiopian eunuch, which because he's a eunuch, would not have been accepted in Jerusalem. He'd have been unclean. It is now found worthy because of Jesus. See, there's some underlying things in this story that we won't go into. But as a eunuch and what that means, 
he would have been completely rejected in Jerusalem. He, he wouldn't have been, no matter what he did, he wouldn't have been worthy of going into the temple to worship. Uh, I, I have a feeling that if he even wanted to be a God seeker, that I said, you, you're, it's too late for you, buddy. And Philip explains to him that Jesus has a call for all. And, and this guy who would have not fit religious society says, why can't I be baptized now? And he stops and baptizes him on the road. See, Philip fulfills the command of Jesus by himself to Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And the story of Acts is God using men and women moving them by His Spirit to, to some unlikely spots and some uncomfortable settings. Eventually, Peter becomes part of this. And Peter, of course, is the apostle. And P Peter's in Simon the Tanner's house. And he has this dream on this roof. And, and there's this... this it's kind of dreams I have. Anybody else dream about food? You know, Peter's dreaming about food, and 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 the blanket comes down. There's all these things, and and the spirit says eat, and and Peter says I've never ate anything unclean. I've never had a bacon and egg sandwich, and uh, God says don't call anything unclean that I've declared clean. It's in the book of Acts. It's 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 really in there. You read read the Bible. This is really in there. He's dreaming about food. And God does it twice, and, and, and then Peter realizes that God's trying to say something to him, and Cornelius, a, a delegation from Cornelius shows up, who's a Greek. And he wants to, he, he, he feels this urgency to talk to Peter. And, and so these Greeks, through the ministry of Peter, become Christian. And Peter begins to understand, even though, and I got to tell you, we read this, and I guess we read this looking back. I wonder what will happen when we look back at our lives, at some of the things that took God a long time to teach us. Peter, full of the Holy Spirit. Amen? Peter on Pentecost was God's man, full of the Holy Spirit. But by the time he gets to, to, to Cornelius, he's going, you know, now I'm starting to see. <laughs> now I'm starting to see that this thing that Jesus did wasn't just for Jews, but it was for everyone. <laughs> Even people that probably have different personal convictions and lifestyles, and come from a different culture than me. And we have the story of Paul, and Paul, of course, is this persecutor of the church, and, and he's with Barnabas to begin with, and, and they go all over the world, and they're declaring all over Asia Minor, they're declaring uh, Jesus and the goodness of Jesus and salvation, and people are getting saved. They, they, they send a letter back to, to the Jerusalem church because they don't know what to do, because all these Gentiles are getting saved, and yet, there's all this Jewish law that they're not meeting up with. And James, the leader of the, uh, of the Jerusalem church, writes back, and they, they meet together, they write back, well, and they put very limited restrictions on these Gentile believers. Don't, don't eat meat. 
sacrifice for idols. You know, don't, don't commit sexual immorality. But, but the vast majority of their culture and their rules, they just... There's no other way to explain it. They, things that they held dear, personal convictions. Personal convictions are great so long as they don't interfere with the move of God. I'd hope to get one amen from that. You know, I have personal convictions, but when my personal convictions keep the move of God or stalemate the move of God, that personal conviction becomes a detriment to what God is trying to do. And Jewish people, Jewish Christians, (laughs) let a lot of this cultural stuff go so that Gentiles could enter into the kingdom, could become part of the ecclesia, the church. And Paul and Barnabas preach and have great results. Then Paul goes out, Barnabas and Paul have conflict. I love that in the Bible, this is not hidden. It's not. They have a significant conflict. And I've had people say, oh, well, was Paul right or Barnabas right? Probably neither of them were right. But God used even that to further the work. Because Barnabas went out with John Mark and Paul went out with Silas and he doubled their efforts. Eventually, Paul ends up in Rome. You know, he comes back to Jerusalem and he's arrested and he he appeals to Caesar. And so after several months, he he finally ends up back in Rome and he's imprisoned. And it's in in prison that Paul writes... Paul writes Ephesians and a number of the letters that we have. (laughs) Maybe you feel like you're in one of those places where your mission has been thwarted, (laughs) That, 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 that you're being held back. Paul was in prison. Paul considered himself a missionary. And Paul wrote letter after letter in prison that we still read and hold dear to this day. So what does God want to use in your life in this period where you feel like things aren't going like I'd like them to? Paul's in Rome and he's in jail. And the book of Acts, for most scholars, they would say it ends kind of unsettled. It's incomplete. He's waiting. It's almost as, and if you read the book of Acts, about halfway through the book of Acts, it moves from, and they, and they, and they, and they, and the book of Acts begins to say, and we, (laughs) there is a drawing in in the book of Acts. Now, now maybe that's when Dr. Luke or whoever wrote the book joined them, but, but, but there is a noticeable shift right in the middle of the book of Acts where it starts, stops saying they, and it starts saying we. And it ends in Acts 28, and it's kind of incomplete, and it seems like there should be more written. And the reason is this. We live in Acts 29. God, God is not through writing his story through the church. He's writing it through the church throughout the ages, and he's writing it in this ecclesia 
This church, this gathered body, Marysville Church of the Nazarene, God is writing his story, and we live in Acts 29. And so, what's that mean? If we, if we live in Acts 29, following the Spirit moves us out of our comfort zones. Ever always. It moves us to places where the good DS from California said at the last M conference I was at, that we're willing to be the stranger, <laughs> that, that we're willing to be someone that's different for the sake of the call. Think about Philip. Philip's in Samaria, then he's with an Ethiopian eunuch. Think about Paul and Barnabas, Paul and Silas. They're constantly moving places where they're the, the outsider. See, the Spirit moves us to places that aren't comfortable where we're encountering people that may have a different perspective than us. Can I say it like this? Holiness that does not move the church is not holiness. Holiness that is not consumed with loss is not holiness. And see, it's real comfortable in Acts 2, 42-47. We're surrounded by people just like us. But the Spirit ever always pushes God's people out. Next week we'll close with consummation. In the next series we'll explore more of the particulars of the Ecclesia. But I want to leave you with a challenge this week. Um, and never think, never for a moment think that this preacher, this pastor, as he delivers this message, is not challenged by this message. I'm just like you. Who likes easy chairs? Say amen, right? I am just like you in that it's very easy to become comfortable but I'm glad I serve a God that continually puts his thumb in my back and says, I've called you to more than being comfortable. And I'm reminded of the story of Isaiah. Isaiah's in the temple and King Uzziah is dead and he's been a good king and, and Isaiah's mourning. In chapter 6 of Isaiah, it's his call, six chapters in. In the year of King Uzziah's death, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, lofty and exalted, with the train of his robe filling the temple. Seraphim stood above him, each having six wings. With two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called out to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the thresholds trembled at the voice of him who called out while the temple was filling with smoke. Then I said, Woe is me, for I'm ruined, because I'm a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me with a burning coal in his hand, which he had taken from the altar with tongs. He touched my mouth with it and said, Behold, this has touched your lips, 
and your iniquity is taken away and your sin is forgiven. (laughs) Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send? And who will go for us? Then I said, Here am I. Send me. My question for you this morning is, how will you answer? Your sins have been forgiven. God is here. Will you go for him?